In this video class, our studies in the first epistle of John continue in chapter 2. And I want to remind you, these video classes are brought to you by the Laurel Heights Church of Christ, McAllen, Texas. I'm Warren Berkeley. I can briefly summarize 1 John chapter 1. The Apostle John announces the truth that Jesus Christ, the eternal word of life, was manifested on the earth, and through him we can enter into fellowship with God. And as we walk in the light, we can confess our sins and be forgiven. God is faithful. Christians are people who have entered into fellowship with God and who walk in the light, claiming to be children of God and with behavior that validates the claim. So today, we move into chapter 2, the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I want us to begin by looking at that first phrase, these things I write to you, or I am writing these things to you. John uses this phrase several times in 1 John to identify that his writing had specific purpose. Let's talk about that. John didn't get up one day and just say, well, it's another day, another epistle. It wasn't like a journal limited to personal benefit. John is reviewing the truth about Jesus Christ to refresh Christians' faith and to respond to some who might have been confused by false teachers. Part of that overall purpose was to do what every New Testament writer did, receive from the Holy Spirit, reveal that to Christians and to anyone who would eventually read it, and in this case, John says, urge Christians to avoid sin. And that brings us to this part, that you may not sin. So let's pause here. I must use the word of God to train myself so I can identify temptations that lead me to sin and put up the appropriate resistance. I must develop my values and motives in keeping with the will of God and the example of Christ 
to know the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. I must grow and enhance my resistance against sin consistently and steadfastly. And everything I've just said is captured in this very simple phrase, this simple phrase in 1 John 2 and verse 1, which ought to be my purpose and your purpose every day, that you may not sin. Make it personal, that I may not sin. Now, uh, as you pursue this high purpose in your life as a Christian, as you think about what John said here, eventually you will have this thought. What if I do sin? The response cannot be to just deny it. John has warned us against that in chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In this same context in chapter 1, he calls upon those who sin to confess their sin. John said if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here's where we are now in chapter 2. It should be my purpose to avoid all sin, but the thought occurs to me, what if I do sin? We must not just ignore it or deny it. We cannot downplay any sin against God or assume some easygoing position. That goes directly against what John's already taught. We are left with the question, though, what if we do sin? And the answer is given by John in verse 2. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, careful what you do with this. Because at this point, it might be tempting to relax in this fashion. Saying to yourself, well, I'm a Christian cleansed by the blood of Christ. I have my advocate with the Father. So if I sin, so what? I'm covered. No big deal. My advocate will take care of that. Does anyone think that's John's message? If we read all John says from the first word of this epistle up to this verse, if we set all of this within the context of the entire New Testament, the entire volume of God's revelation, we must conclude there is no justification ever for any relaxed attitude toward any sin. What brings us to Christ in the first place is the serious desire to be rid of sin in our lives. In our first contact with the gospel of Christ, we expressed our faith in Christ by repenting of our sin and being baptized for the remission of our sins. Now that we are in Christ, do we take on a relaxed, tolerant posture towards sin? Paul responded to this in Romans 6. He said, God forbid. No. Paul said, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Romans 6 verse 2. There, there's nothing anywhere in the New Testament that encourages or recommends a relaxed, tolerant posture toward sin. 
Matthew Henry said the gospel, when rightly understood and received, sets the heart against all sin. So here's what I'm going to say to us now in our class. I have an advocate, not so I can sin, but in case I do. As a Christian, my heart should be set against sin. I should not sin. That should be my frame of mind. That should be my aim. But if I do sin, I am not suddenly thrown into a hopeless, forever lost condition because I have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who died for me, the righteous one who is the solution, the remedy for sin. He's there at the right hand of God, and I participate in his advocacy when I do what John instructs in this context. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, my rule, my purpose should be, I will not sin. But if I sin, there is no reason for despair. Remorse, yes, but not despair. Rely on your advocate. Confess your sin. And the promise is, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let me talk with you about what an advocate is, as the term is used here. An advocate in this sense is one who stands alongside another for the benefit of a third party. One who stands alongside another for the benefit of a third party. The New Testament word used here is not really an exact synonym for a modern lawyer or defense counselor. The Greek word parakletos literally means one who stands alongside for the benefit of his people. And it includes the idea of comfort. I think the advocacy of Jesus for his people cannot be reduced to simply defense. Let me draw you a picture. Here's what I believe this is not about. I'm going to illustrate what I deny this is about. Suppose in conversation with you, there is some sort of pressure. So I tell you a lie. Uh, I sin in that way. As soon as I sin, regardless of my reaction, Jesus steps before the great judge and begins arguing in my defense, offering mitigating circumstances or recommending leniency because I don't have a really bad record. And then God says, all right, forget it. I'll dismiss the charges. I don't think that's it. I don't think that's it at all. There is no automatic plea for dismissal. There is no bargaining to secure acquittal. Our advocate does not plead that we are innocent, though we are actually guilty. He doesn't state our case in terms of extenuating circumstances. He acknowledges our guilt and presents his atoning death as grounds for our acquittal. He does this for penitent believers who confess their sins. 
as John has already taught us. In 1 John 2 and verse 1, John is continuing to explain the very thing he was talking about in the last few verses of chapter 1. It is vital for us to tie all this in together from chapter 1 into chapter 2. We cannot read 1 John 2, 1 and take any kind of relaxed posture towards sin. We cannot read 1 John 2, 1 and think of this as automatic and unconnected to penitence and confession. I believe the advocacy John is talking about in 1 John 2, 1 is a promise based on the blood of Christ, a promise to those who react to sin as John teaches back in chapter 1, verse 9. As I walk in the light, as I confess every sin I'm aware I've committed, and humbly seek God's forgiveness, keeping my heart right, I enjoy the advocacy of Jesus Christ, the righteous. And all this flows from and is made possible by the grace of God. I do not know why the NIV omitted the word advocate, the Greek Word is translated advocate in the King James, New King James, New American Standard, American Standard Version. But in the NIV, it says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The absence of sin should be the Christian's general character, our purpose. I'm not going to sin. But on those occasions where we do sin, we should penitently confess our sin, asking God's forgiveness, and this involves the advocacy of Jesus Christ the righteous, not just Jesus speaking before the Father, but speaking before the, the Father based on the atoning death that he offered on our behalf. Now, Jesus is qualified to be our advocate. In fact, he's the only one qualified to be our advocate because of this in verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It is not merely that Jesus is good at arguing the sinner's case before the Father. It is not merely that Jesus is good at arguing the sinner's case. Striking a bargain. Do not think of this in terms of the traditional attorney, judge, client relationship. Jesus is qualified as our advocate in heaven because he is righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. In fact, the atoning benefit of his death is available for the whole world, though there are many in the world who do not take that advantage. Let's tackle the word propitiation. The first challenge is pronunciation. Traditionally, propitiation. Some offer alternative ways to pronounce it. We're not going to be dogmatic about that. Most important is what does it mean? To propitiate is to conciliate or to regain favor, according to Webster. 
sin moves us away from God. When you sin and continue in sin and live in sin, your transgression tears you apart from God. So what you need is reconciliation to God, and that requires mercy. Jesus died to bring us back to God. I'm turning to 1 John 4 and verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Likewise, in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 18, another statement that is in harmony with this and may help us understand it. 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. He is my advocate in heaven by virtue of his atoning death, not just that he's a good speaker. He gave his life to reconcile me to God. That's the advocacy of Jesus Christ that I participate in when I sin through the penitent confession that I offer according to what John wrote. In my initial obedience to the gospel, when I repent and I'm baptized, I'm reconciled to God. After that, on those occasions when I sin, I can again rely upon him according to the conditions and terms given by John. Again, the NIV leaves out the word propitiation and simply renders a form of the definition. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. From the time you become a Christian until your earthly sojourn is over, your aim must be to avoid all sin. When you realize you have sinned, your response should be to penitently confess your sin and seek God's forgiveness. John wants us to know God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What makes this work is the advocacy of Jesus Christ the righteous, and it's not just that he's a good talker before God. His atoning sacrifice, his righteousness, validates his role as our advocate. Let's move further. Now by this, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Well, it's time for us to talk about this little word, know, as used by John. In our language, we use the word no simply to mean acquaintance. Often, all we mean is we can put a name to a face. Whether we are talking about simple knowledge of someone's existence or a close friendship or long-term relationship, in modern English, we use the same word, no. We must not impose our modern use of that word into the text of 1 John. In fact, not only in 1 John, but in many New Testament passages. 
<clears throat> this word know conveys the closest of relationships. In fact, fellowship with deity. Personal relationship with God conveyed by this word know. May I offer three examples? I'm turning to the book of Hebrews in chapter 8, and I'm going to find verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, but they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. There is that word know that's more than just acquaintance. It has to do with relationship through the new covenant. 2 Timothy 1, I'm going to read verse 12. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. That's know, that's knowledge that is personal, relationship, not just putting a face to a name. <clears throat> In Philippians chapter 3 and in verse 10, Philippians 3 and verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So in the New Testament, in many passages, knowing God and knowing Christ has to do with relationship, with fellowship, not just academic knowledge or casual acquaintance. Now back to our verse. 1 John 2 and verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Assurance of fellowship with God lies in our active, obedient response to him who promises to forgive us and take us based on the death of Christ. Claims of fellowship with God, claims of knowing God, but with no response to him are empty claims. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Walking in the light means being serious about sin, relying on our advocate in heaven and keeping his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This verse follows up on verse 3 and virtually repeats 1 John 1, 6. Claims without corresponding behavior constitute falsehood. Claims without corresponding behavior constitute falsehood, a lie. And we sometimes refer to this kind of thing as hypocrisy, claiming we know him but without any response to him. Walking in the light means being serious about sin, relying on our advocate in heaven and keeping his commandments. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know 
that we are in him. If you need to look at a verse that defines who is in fellowship with God, this is that verse. If you need to look at a verse that defines who participates in the fullest way in the love of God, this is that verse. And the answer in both cases is whoever keeps his word. Verse 6 functions the same way. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Again, this defines or describes the person who enjoys fellowship with God and abides in Christ. The one who walks just as he walked. And you will see right in the middle of this verse that common New Testament word that conveys personal obligation. Ought. Have you ever heard someone talk about a sense of ought? That's obligation. And this is not an option. This is an ought, a personal obligation, not an option. If you desire fellowship with deity, this is what you ought to do. This is how you ought to live. Walk as he walked. Follow the example of Christ. Great professions involve great obligations. If you want fellowship with deity, and if you profess to abide in him, you must live out the obligation to walk as Christ walked. So I'm going to conclude our study of this passage by reading to you a quotation. This is a paragraph from an article written about our advocate by Joe Fitch many years ago. We need an advocate because we have an adversary, a fierce adversary. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5 and verse 8. The name Satan means adversary. Surely the devil is our enemy. He is determined to destroy us, and on our own he would likely succeed. Jesus rallies to our cause to stand by our side. Jesus is surely able to bind the strong man, Matthew 12, 25 to 29, and deliver the oppressed. The cry of the conquered man, who will deliver me from this body of death in Romans 7, is answered. And Jesus is the answer, the friend called to aid. And so in Romans 7.25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh yes, we have an advocate in our battle with Satan. What an advocate we have. Thank you for being with us in our study in 1 John.